Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 129 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Today we look at a story from Sunderland in the northeast of England, spanning 25 years. I'd really like to thank true crime author Chris Clark for bringing this story to my attention and for his expert research and insight. You can catch Chris on Facebook at The Armchair Detective or at the UK True Crime Facebook group where he is an active and valued contributor. Check out his most recent book written with Paul Harrison, The Face of Evil, all about serial killer Robert Black and rather than pay him my standard research fee, Chris asked that I donate the money to SoSad.com, a dog rescue charity in County Durham. An excellent cause. I'm delighted that today's show is sponsored by The Economist, the magazine for the kind of person who never stops asking questions and wants to know why the world is the way it is. The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance. It covers a range of subjects from world politics and business to science, technology, arts, the environment and even, of course, crime. For example, this week, there is a fascinating article about the murder of journalist Lyra McKee and how her killing has sparked absolute revulsion with the so-called new IRA. The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. So if you've never stopped asking questions, get your free copy now. To claim your free print copy of The Economist, just text CRIME in all capitals to 78070. That is text CRIME to 78070 to receive your free print copy of The Economist. Thank you. Let's quickly set some context for today's episode by looking at the music we were listening to in October 1992. Number one in the UK was The Shaman with Ebenezer Good. Anyone got any viewers? In the US it was Boys to Men with End of the Road which was in the top spot for 13 weeks, soon to be replaced by Whitney with I Would Always Love You. Never heard of it. In the Australian album charts, the number one selling album this year was the soundtrack from the 1992 Australian version of Jesus Christ Superstar, keeping Baby Animals with Baby Animals from top spot. This was the month that saw singer Sinead O'Connor rip up a picture of Pope John Paul II on Saturday Night Live. The Rome General Peace Accords ended a 16-year civil war in Mozambique, and New York City subway motorman Robert Ray was convicted of manslaughter for the death of five riders when he fell asleep drunk whilst in control of a train. Madonna's book Sex went on sale. Did you buy it? No, nor me. And in the UK, John Major's government attempted to tackle the recession by cutting the base interest rate to 8%, the lowest since June 1988. Today's story comes from Sunderland, a city in the northeast of England with a proud heritage in shipbuilding and coal mining. Home to Sunderland Football Club, which was so well covered in the excellent Netflix documentary Sunderland Till I Die. 
Even if you don't like football, I'd suggest it's a must-watch. The mighty Leeds United have been filming for a similar series this season, but the way it's going, I may give that a miss if it is ever produced, and repeatedly watch Titanic instead. Nicky Allen was born in Sunderland on the 30th of August 1985. Nicky lived with her mum, 26-year-old Sharon, and three sisters in the Weir Girls block of flats overlooking the docks of Sunderland in the East End. Nicky was a lovely little girl, described as bright and sparky. Like all girls of that age, she enjoyed playing with her toys, her friends, and she loved eating cheese and onion flavoured crisps. Her mum Sharon was close with her parents who lived in the same block of flats and they helped look after her three children. Money was tight and it was tough but Sharon made sure her children ate well, always had clean clothes and most importantly received lots of love. There was nothing unusual about the night of the 7th of October 1992. Sharon and her family went to visit her parents. His flat was just 150 yards away. After several hours, the exact times are unclear. Sharon says 8.30pm, whereas witnesses and some police later said 10pm. Sharon's daughter Nikki left for home before her mum. When just 10 minutes later, according to Sharon, she left for home too. She arrived back to find there was no sign of her daughter Nikki. Sharon felt her anxiety rise as she just couldn't see Nikki anywhere. Just where was she? After all, Her parents' flat was just across one short corridor and up one stairwell from where she lived. Where had she got to? Within the hour, Nicky had been reported missing and the police arrived. The east end of Sunderland is still a very close community, but in 1992, everyone seemed to know everyone and word soon spread that Nicky was missing and soon over 100 local volunteers were knocking on doors, searching the riverbank, parks and playgrounds desperately searching for the little girl. Had she just wandered off or was it something more sinister? Volunteers remained hopeful that there would be a happy ending, a simple explanation. The next morning there was still no sign of Nikki, and police convened a press conference to make a public appeal to find her. Reporters, photographers, radio journalists and TV crews gathered in an upstairs room at the Gillbridge Avenue police station in Sunderland hoping for more details about the missing girl and ready to do all they could to help find her. But moments before the press conference was due to begin, an officer entered the room and spoke to Superintendent Alex Price, the senior officer. It was the worst possible news. That earlier that morning, a group of searchers, one of whom was Nikki's aunt, spotted a pair of children's shoes and coat carefully placed neatly outside the derelict and long-abandoned Quayside Exchange building. Inside, little Nicky's lifeless body lay in a pool of blood. The post-mortem made horrific reading, as it was revealed that Nicky was beaten with a brick and stabbed 37 times with a knife in the chest and the abdomen. Shock, horror and anger engulfed the local community, and the police were immediately under pressure to discover exactly who had killed seven-year-old Nikki Allen. Their initial inquiries led to a number of witnesses coming forward to say they'd seen Nikki as late as 10pm, begging for money, outside the local Boar's Head pub. Some said she'd been begging for money to go to the sweet shop down the road, whereas others felt it was maybe due to Halloween, or else Nikki was maybe asking for a penny for the guy.
Detectives announced that they wanted to trace everyone who had visited that pub on the Wednesday night when Nicky was last seen. They revealed that a man rang their incident room on the Thursday to say that a 14-year-old girl had told him that a blood-stained man she saw on Wednesday night claimed he had just murdered someone. The call was anonymous and police appealed for the male caller and or the girl to contact them. Detective Superintendent George Sinclair, leading the murder inquiry, said that the killer may be a local man, possibly known to Nicky. Police suspected that he led her away from the Boar's Head down the High Street East or Lower Road. George Sinclair appealed to anyone in the area at the time to contact police. Provided we get the assistance of the public, I have no doubt we will conclude the inquiry, he said. The incident room had received more than 100 calls in the first 24 hours of the murder inquiry. He revealed that the post-mortem examination showed no signs of a sexual assault. However, the detective did not rule out a sexual element to the attack, saying, It may have started off as a sexual motive, but may have stopped, resulting in the girl being killed. He said that police thought the killer was familiar with the High Street West warehouse where Nicky's body was found in the basement. It is a dark place down there, not very well lit. It's a dangerous place to be, unless you know the place. And police added that Nicky's mum, Sharon, was still deeply shocked and under sedation. Nicky's school friends paid for her and attributed her school, with the headmaster saying, She was a beautiful girl who will be dearly missed. We prayed that we could all be strong together until this terrible black cloud has blown over. We know it's not going to be easy and that the children will go on shedding tears. But we hope, eventually, we can put this horrible event behind us. Nicky's uncle, Terry Clark, said, The whole family is just devastated by this tragedy. I don't imagine we will ever come to terms with it. Nicky was a great little girl, loved by everybody, and her life just didn't deserve to end this way. He said that he firmly believes she had been snatched, because she'd been warned never to go with strangers. She wasn't the sort of girl who would just go off, he said. She knew the dangers. The police released CCTV images of a man in a light-coloured shirt walking with a little girl towards the exchange building. The images weren't clear, but it had to be Nikki and her killer. Who else would have been walking down there with a young girl at 9pm in October? Then a week later, there was a reconstruction, with a girl dressed in similar clothing to Nikki's on the night she disappeared, from the boar's head towards the old exchange building. She was with a man dressed exactly the same as the one that we'd seen in the CCTV. As detectives continued their inquiry, there was plenty of information coming in from local people. One witness told detectives he'd heard a child scream from the general direction of the Quayside Exchange building. And throughout their inquiries, there was one constant. A number of people kept mentioning the same one man as the person they suspected was guilty of the murder, and that was local man 24-year-old George Heron, and within days, he was brought in for questioning. George Heron lived on the same estate as Nicky. He hadn't been there for long before Nicky disappeared, just a few weeks, but it appeared that Heron was known to frequent the Quayside Exchange where Nicky's body had been found. Quite why, however, is unclear. On the night of Nicky's disappearance, a number of witnesses told detectives that Heron had been seen at the Boar's Head pub 
and that he'd been spotted by Nicky's favourite flavour crisps, cheese and onion. So it seemed that he had been at the scene. In addition to this, his sister stated that he'd acted in a very suspicious manner that evening when he got home. He'd gone straight to the bathroom, where, unusually for him, he spent a good half an hour washing both himself and his clothes that he'd been wearing. Detectives searched his home, and they found clothing and trainers with blood splatters on them, and a knife that they believed was the one used to kill Nicky, or at least, it was capable of producing identical wounds to the ones found on her body. Heron initially denied knowing Nicky, but later admitted that he did know her after all, and he had spoken to her. He was confronted with the evidence of a large number of people who placed him at the pub that night, but he still continued to deny that he was there. He also denied actually knowing Nikki 120 times before he admitted that he did in fact know her. But after three days of solid questioning, Heron cracked and confessed to murdering Nikki Allen. Police charged him with murder. The fury and anger amongst the local community is quite hard to describe. And Sunderland Echo journalist Gary Welford describes Heron's first appearance in court. He said, I attended Sunderland Magistrates Court in the standing room only, with the usually sparsely populated public gallery and press bench packed to overflowing. Threats were shouted from the public area as Heron was brought up from the cells below, and you could feel the tension in the air as the charge of murder was put to him. This is a case of such magnitude that it can't be tried by magistrates, it will end up at Crown Court, and it's adjourned with the suspect remanded back into custody. As the thin, dark-haired, bespectacled heron turns to face the public gallery and be led back down to the cells, those in the public gallery unleash their anger at him. One man lunges forward and tries to attack him and has to be restrained by police officers guarding the dock. The thick brass handrail around it is left visibly bent as he's led away and a shaken heron is ushered downstairs. There are people outside Gilbridge Avenue Police Station too, making angry threats and banging on the side of the unmarked van as Heron is driven away, to be remanded in prison until his trial. And that trial took place at Leeds Crown Court. In this extract from the Times newspaper in October 1993, Aidan Marin QC explains the case for the prosecution. The girl began to scream and that screaming had to be silenced. He picked up a brick and hit her a solid heavy blow on the head. The jury was told she'd fallen to the ground, striking her head on the wall, and that Heron hit her again with the brick as she lay on the floor. QC Marin said, By that time she had a skull fracture and areas of her brain were damaged. He then produced a knife, lifted her t-shirt and carried out a frenzied attack, inflicting a total of 37 wounds to her chest. But there were difficulties with the prosecution's case. In this podcast, we've seen some excellent police work and some that has been, well, pretty terrible. According to the judge hearing this trial, the police work here fell firmly into the latter category. The judge, Justice Mitchell, listened to the tapes and read the transcripts of the police interviews with Heron. He ruled seven of the 12 interview tapes inadmissible including the vital tape where Heron had confessed to murder. He was scathing in his criticism, saying that detectives had misrepresented their evidence to Heron, 
and that they'd used oppressive methods to extract his confession. And there was evidence of more sloppy police work. The first six hours of Heron's interview was attended by a legal secretary, not a qualified solicitor. The police had failed in their legal duty to instruct anyone interviewed under caution that they are entitled to have a qualified solicitor present. And despite Heron continually emphasising that he was innocent, the police continued to interview him as if he was the murderer, until suffering from mental fatigue following three days of really tough questioning, he confessed. For these reasons, the judge didn't accept this as a valid confession. And the judge was equally unimpressed with the evidence of blood splatters and the knife found at Heron's home, ruling that this evidence was circumstantial. Due to this, the witness statements took on huge importance. But again, there were issues, as the key witnesses who placed Heron at the pub, or claimed to have seen Nicky there, were not impressive. They gave different descriptions, and crucially, they could not identify Heron in identity parades, and gave evidence of further police pressure to get a result. An example of this was Darren Baker, the boyfriend of Heron's sister, who told the court that Heron had been out for an hour at the time Nicky was murdered. But under cross-examination, he said that this account was a lie. He said that Heron had actually watched TV with the rest of the family on the night that Nicky was killed. But he had been arrested on suspicion of assisting an offender and was kept in police cells for nearly five days. He was terrified. In the end, he said, I told them what they wanted to know because I was sick of being locked up. After six weeks, the judge had had enough and ordered the jury to acquit George Heron of the murder charge, sparking mayhem in the court with Nicky's mum collapsing, friends and relatives shouting in anger and members of the jury reduced to tears. One person in the packed public gallery yelled, you're dead, we'll kill you at Heron. And another said, you killed that bairn. But whatever their reaction, George Heron was a free man. It was of course impossible for him to return to Sunderland. So he was put on a train, given a new identity, and moved out of the area altogether. Northumbria police were as unimpressed with the judge as he was with them with Detective Chief Superintendent Barry Stewart, head of Northumbria CID, saying that he had no criticism of the officers involved in the case. He said that the forensic evidence was not of the best quality, and because of that, the police have been dependent on witnesses and evidence arising out of interviews. He said, These interviews were conducted properly by police in accordance with the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. The allegation the judge had made of oppression was, he said, a matter of interpretation, adding, in a difficult case like this, there is no use pussyfooting around. The anger felt against Heron was huge. Soon after the trial, his solicitor's office was firebombed, and even while Heron was in prison on remand, he was slashed across the face by an inmate and left badly scarred. Sharon, Nicky's mum, was secretly invited into the prison to meet the inmate so she could thank him personally. I was even sent letters from some of the jurors, said Sharon, saying that they would be haunted by Nicky's murder for the rest of their lives. And this terrible murder totally destroyed Sharon's life. The way the media portrayed her is reminiscent of some of what we sometimes see today. False stories circulated that she neglected her children, 
and that she was some way more interested in partying than childcare. It must have been horrendous for her. In a later interview with the Guardian newspaper in 2006, just after Nikki should have turned 21, she addressed the comments made that Nikki had been left to walk the streets alone the night she went missing. This rumour, along with others about Sharon, proved groundless. But she said that the slurs added to her already unbearable pain. When the child of a single mother is murdered, she says, it's as if they weren't looked after properly and that we let them run wild. I would die for any of my children. On top of her grief for Nikki, the slurs, the messed up police case, and the horror that Herona got away with it, meant that she had an incredibly tough time. In the Guardian interview, she told how in the years that followed she struggled to get through each day, saying, The only point to my life became looking after my other children and trying to get justice for Nikki, but I could not see how. In an attempt to reclaim a normal life, she did remarry, but that also suffered from the strain of her grief and her continuing campaign for justice, and she and her husband weren't able to stay together. In 1994, Sharon sued George Heron for the battery of a child resulting in her death. Heron never contested the case, and it was ruled in Sharon's favour, and she was awarded 7,000 in damages. I had to do something, she said. After the trial, the police never apologised or explained what went wrong. I felt abandoned. But Heron could not be traced, and so Sharon never received the money. But her campaigning to keep Nikki's story in the news has been utterly relentless. By 2002, prompted by advances in DNA testing, which she hoped would be able to show the blood found on Heron's shoes was Nikki's, Sharon was sending at least one letter a month to the police the Home Office, and even the Queen. Then in 2014 there was hope again for the family, when a 47-year-old man was arrested in connection with the murder. It was later revealed by police that this person was Stephen Greveson, also known as the Sunderland Strangler, who at the time was serving three life sentences for the murder of three teenage boys between 1993 and 1994. The family felt that finally, Maybe justice for Nikki was in sight, and Sharon was so overcome with emotion that she physically collapsed. It later being realised that she'd even suffered a mild stroke. Sharon wrote to the killer asking him to cooperate with the inquiry, but detectives later said that his bail had been cancelled and he was no longer of interest to them in respect to this case. On the 25th anniversary of Nikki's murder in 2017, Sharon appeared on Crime Watch. Police announced that they'd recovered fervic forensic results, including some DNA from a male, which they believed could help the investigation. They appealed for male members of the family, friends, or others who innocently may have come into contact with Nikki to come forward to have a DNA sample taken so they could be eliminated from inquiries. The first male to step forward was Nikki's dad, David Allen who was speaking out for the first time in 25 years to show his support for the police investigation and to urge any other men who came into contact with Nikki to come forward for DNA testing. Then in April 2018, a local man was arrested by police over Nikki's murder. Sharon, now 51, said, They came to tell us they'd made an arrest. My legs just went. I was like a baby. I was saying, please tell me this is real. I've had my hopes up and down so many times. 
but the suspect was released under investigation after being questioned. And in February this year, 2019, Sharon found herself in court at Sunderland Magistrates Court charged with an offence under the Communications Act, where she agreed to a restraining order barring her from making any online mention of the guide post-pub, landlord Keith Jewett, his wife Julie and customer Caroline Richards, or communicating with them directly or indirectly. Michael Rose, prosecuting, told the court that Sharon had believed, rightly or wrongly, that the occupants of the pub knew something about Nikki's murder. She had put comments on her Facebook page calling people scum and rats, said Mr Rose, and solicitor Jason Smith, for Sharon, said she believed the information had been withheld at the time of the original investigation into her daughter Nikki's death. And this was always Sharon's belief, that someone at the time knew what had happened and had that vital piece of information needed to solve the case. She believes that people out there knew why Heron was familiar with the Quayside Exchange building and that they may have not been able to come forward at the time as they may have been implicating themselves in some criminal wrongdoing. After all, it was well known that the building was used by drug takers, vagrants and local youths as somewhere to hide out. But now, of course, it has a much more sinister legacy as a place where an innocent little girl met a terribly violent death. But time has moved on and relationships and allegiances may have changed. And with perspective, Sharon hopes that people are now finally ready to come forward saying, I would appeal to them to now get in touch and tell detectives just what they know. They may well have families themselves now and are embarrassed about their past, but if they have any information, however small or seemingly insignificant, please come forward. But as of today, as I record this on the 26th of April 2019, Nikki's family remain in limbo. There have been no new charges and the person who killed Nikki is still free. And you can't help feeling just so sorry for Sharon. I think this paragraph from her Guardian interview in 2006 very clearly demonstrates the nightmare that she is still living. Sharon told how she'd only stopped walking the route Nikki took from her granddad's to her death only recently. When people saw me walking that route, she said, they would all stop and bow their heads even the men working the boats. If whoever killed Nikki is finally convicted, Sharon believes she could finally start to grieve properly for her dead daughter. But there'll be no peace for me even then, she said, because the day some bastard smashed a brick over my innocent child's head was the day that I went to hell. Anyone with any information about Nikki's death can speak to Northumbria Police's major crime team on 101 extension 69191 or the independent charity Crime Stoppers on 0800 5511. I'll post the link on the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast and a huge thank you to Chris Clark for bringing this story to my attention. To discuss this case further or any other aspect of UK True Crime please join 2,500 of us at the Facebook group you'll be made very, very welcome. And to support the show, head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where there are almost 30 bonus episodes, plus other exclusive content. And if you'd like to see me live, just head to UKTrueCrime.com for details of my upcoming live events.
So that is all for me for today. So until we speak again next week, take it easy. And most of all, stay classy. Cheerio. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.